The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. Serious Fun, the podcast that doesn't want you getting sick of it by putting out too many episodes in a calendar year. As always, I am your host, Dr. Brian Carr, and yes, it's been a while since the last episode of Serious Fun. Seriously, like a whole Windows update has happened. I'm on Windows 11 now. It's fine. So for those of you who may not remember, Serious Fun is a show where we take a look at popular culture, you know, the fun stuff. From a serious perspective, from the sort of stuffy academia, our monocles dangling from our face and our, our mortarboards slightly askew and whatnot, but it's also not really that either. What it is, it's a conversation. It's conversations, really, with the folks who create, critique, and celebrate pop culture in all its forms. And on that note, I cannot think of a better guest to return to the hallowed shores of podcasting with then one of my favorite folks, David L. Craddock. Now, David's new to the show, but he's been in the game for a long time, plying his trade in long-form games journalism, as well as writing numerous books. Some of them include a deep dive into the history and development of XCOM UFO defense called Monsters in the Dark, the Stay a While and Listen trilogy chronicling the history of Blizzard Entertainment and Diablo, as well as Arcade Perfect, which explores the porting of arcade games to home consoles. He's also got a young adult fantasy series called The Garden Chronicles. His newest book, and the subject of today's episode, is available for you to back on kickstarter.com right the heck now. It's called Long Live Mortal Kombat Round 1. It's a rousing history of the development of the legendary fighting game franchise and the fans and culture around it. It's really kind of staggering to think, but Mortal Kombat turns 30 years old this year. So there's no better time to sit back and learn a bit about one of the most beloved and controversial video game series of all time. It's an absolute pleasure to have David here. Let's not waste any more time. Let's get right to it. David L. Craddock, right now on Serious Fun. Hello and welcome to Serious Fun, where today it's Mortal Monday. Or, well, I mean, it's Friday, but it really isn't every day Mortal Monday. In our hearts. Uh, as always, in our as always, I am Brian Carr. With me today, very, very excited to talk to this gentleman, a uh, guy whose work I've admired for a long time, and uh, you know, certainly one of the, um, I'd say one of the the best game history writers out there right now. David Craddock about his new book and the Kickstarter campaign to go with it. Long live Mortal Kombat, David. Welcome to Serious Fun. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. It's been a while since we've gotten to chat, so I've really been yeah. looking forward to this. It's been a minute. We used to, you know, we used to run, uh, you know, in, in similar circles. And, uh, you know, I was always a fan of your work. Um, I was, we were talking. I, I, I remember that I had actually written a blurb for one of the books. And so, you know, I, I stand by every word of it. It was very good. <laughs> <laughs> good. Well, thank um, you. We'll talk some more about that. Um, but of course, we're here to talk about long live Mortal Kombat. Uh, and that's a fun topic. We're approaching the 30th anniversary. If we, I'm, I'm trying to remember, like, and I know this is in the book and I was just reading it, but I also have a memory of a goldfish. So um, 
when so like what year like what month and day are we talking kind of as the official date for mortal Kombat's 30th anniversary version but, 1.0 came to right. arcades on october 8th 1992 october that's right okay yeah so we're not quite there yet but it's a year-long thing so we're gonna uh have a good time ripping people's heads off um that's right so i want to start off uh for our listeners who might not be as familiar with you, who you and who you uh your work and who you are tell us the david craddock story what kind of gets you to this point so uh almost 40 years ago i was born and then a lot of stuff happened and then i discovered that i liked uh playing video games and reading and writing and a little over 18 years ago i started writing about games for a now defunct site called mygamer.com and i was just having a lot of fun doing that it was pro bono every now and then they'd toss a game my way and i'd review it and it took a little while but i realized that the best part the most fun part for me was writing about the games more than playing them i just loved to tell stories and so that takes us to 2013 when i published my first book about video games they will listen book one which is the start of a trilogy about Blizzard Entertainment, Warcraft, Starcraft, and Diablo, of course, that being the focus, they won't listen. Um, and uh, that book became a, a bestseller and things kind of took off from there. I, I do some freelance writing, although less these days, I'm more focused full-time on books and um, I'm also directing my first documentary film called FPS First Person Shooter, which will be out in... Um, about a year from now, February 2023, interviewed almost 50 people for that, doing it for a production company called Creator VC. They've done a lot of other pop culture focused documentaries on like horror films and 80s sci-fi movies. And I'm also just recently this week, I started doing some narrative design on an un as yet unannounced uh, video game project so i've done some of that too over the years just kind of dabble in it here and there so yeah a lot of irons in the fire right now but writing is feast or famine so i'm just gonna stuff myself while i can no, it, it makes total sense and man you you are keeping busy i i did see a bit about fps i'm really excited to see that come together um but uh you know we're here to talk about long live mortal combat and uh, this is the first of how many books are we planning in this one is this gonna be another trilogy this will be a trilogy. So instead of calling them book one or volume two or so forth, it'll be round one, round two, and then final round because Mortal Kombat is two out of three. So that's the right. Plan. Unless unless you mess with the settings, but who does that? Unless um, you mess with the settings. Don't do that. You know. Don't. You know, two out don't of three is fine. Let's not, yeah. not get fancy here. That's right. Uh, so this book, I just wanted to give folks who are thinking about checking this out. Um, when I when I talked about you know doing this interview with uh, some of the the folks at Phoenix Studios. Um, they were excited about Mortal Kombat and just really enthusiastic about it. And it's just what a marked change this has been in terms of like, you know, academia, educators being excited about Mortal Kombat in 2022 versus 1992, where they thought about Mortal Kombat back then. Um, but, you know, also a lot of the folks, you know, they probably kind of were, you know, teenagers or kind of around that time when it was new so right. you know um it was it was uh you know apart from one of a a, a a executive on phoenix studios who shall remain nameless calling sub-zero frozone um there was a it was it was a very uh fun conversation you know who you are um so 
you know, this is, but this is also a book that kind of goes well beyond just simply being kind of like, here's, you know, it, this thing happened and this thing, this happened, this, you know, this is a book that kind of tries to grapple, I would say with the larger culture and context around Mortal Kombat, as well as the games themselves. So what encouraged you to write this book? So this is going to sound like a humble brag, but it, I assure you it's not. I've kind of gotten to the point where, yeah, I'm a hybrid author. I've sold some books. I've self-published others. This one I decided to self-publish because I'm a control freak and want to control the, the marketing and formatting and distribution. Um, but I've kind of gotten to the point where, you know, I, I write about older games, not because I'm nostalgic. I'm actually not really by nature, but because a lot of the games I grew up playing are still fascinating or still going today. And back then we didn't have super duper collector's editions with art books and documentaries that gave insight into the behind the scenes happenings. And when we do get them, they're usually pretty sanitized because they're released by publicly traded companies who have an image to maintain for their shareholders. So despite that, you know, I, I love Soulsborne games, for example. I haven't played Elden Ring, but it is installed, locked and loaded, ready to go. But um, I won't write about it because I, I'm to the point where I've written so many of these things that I need to find an entry point, you know, point of ingress that fascinates me and that a lot of other people haven't already explored. And so Mortal Kombat, I've loved it since I was 10. I discovered it in arcades, played it on home systems, been a fan ever since. Um, it's turning 30. I'll be 40 soon. So there's a lot of... Uh, I'm old, just old enough to remember a lot of those early days. And that still wasn't really enough of an impetus for me to do this. Um, I wanted to write about how it was made. And I've interviewed, you know, developers like, like John Tobias, Ken Fedesnet, Midway, um, a lot of people at Acclaim, but still looking for that hook. And the hook to me was that as a Mortal Kombat fan, I'm well aware that this franchise has gone through some high highs and some very, very low lows. And what always kind of brought it up out of the darkness was the fan community, just the, the ceaseless passion for these games that fans have. No matter what happens to a current Mortal Kombat game or movie or book or comic series or what have you, they're, they're still optimistic that the next one will be the best one yet. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to write a book that kind of alternated between taking you behind closed doors to see how the sausage is made and then going outside to see how the final product shaped the lives of the people who interacted with it. And that's certainly something you do. I mean, this is a book that, um, you know, it's, this is a tome, I should say. Um, <laughs> this is a lengthy, lengthy proposition. You're going to spend some time with this book, but it's going to fly by. Um, <clears throat> And, and, you know, it's, it is interesting. I mean, you're looking at this and not starting the conversation with uh, Ed Boone and John Tobias, right? The guys that create Mortal Kombat or the directors on it. Right. You know, like, like a lot of folks would probably just start there, right? Yeah. Um, you start off like well before they really kind of, you know, these like, you, like before they become this sort of position of prominence at Midway. Um, you spent a lot of time talking about Eugene Jarvis, for instance, the, the guy who created Tempest was a huge mentor to them, you know, mm -hmm. um, had a lot of influence in kind of the design philosophy behind Mortal Kombat. And, you know, with a story that's just sort of this big and sprawling, you know, where's like, how do you find that entry point? How are you deciding what's essential to telling the story? Now, that's a great question. Um, I, I know that I, 
it might surprise some of my readers to know that I've published a few short stories because I don't seem to be able to write anything shorter than a hundred thousand words. And this is double that. Um, but the reason I, I went back so far with Eugene Jarvis and even wrote about William's history and in, in pinball was because um, for, for two reasons, Eugene Jarvis was instrumental because as a, as someone who came from pinball and then wrote code for video games, he created a sort of operating system that became kind of the de facto platform for other arcade games written in assembly within Williams and later within Midway when the, the video division, as they called it, was rechristened Midway. And I mean, Ed Boone was kind of mentored by Eugene Jarvis, used his code, but sort of remanufactured, repurposed for the particulars of Mortal Kombat, but it was still the his foundation. And so I wanted to introduce people to Eugene Jarvis because I, I view technology and games as more of a stage for it was a truck uh, for the actors, for the the developers and the people who make the games, because that's more interesting to me. And then pinball, because again, Eugene Jarvis worked there before he wrote code for games, but um, Ed Boone also came from pinball. And it, it's funny, just last night, uh, as we're recording this, he was honored for, you know, over 35 years in the industry contributions for, for major uh, you know, watershed moments by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences. And he said that when he um, got his job at Williams, he didn't even realize you wrote code for pinball games. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he started there, moved into video games, met John Tobias, and then they went on to change history, to put it mildly. So I wanted that set up. And all this is told within, you know, the first two chapters, which I think are pretty in-depth, but breezy, kind of fun to read. Mm -hmm. uh, that's always the goal. And yeah, that's, that's kind of how I found my way in. Let, let's start there, give some history. And then when you get to points of things like, oh, this is Mortal Kombat's code and how Ed Boon kind of learned, you have that background to inform you. Yeah, and, and one of the things that you, you really do center the story on the people that are kind of, that are involved in all this, you know, there's a, a, the, the not only kind of what, what they bring to, but also some of the interactions and relationships they had. Um, and you get some really outside the box interviews. There's a, a, a chapter in there about Andrei Stefanov and the Bulgarian Mortal Kombat scene. And I'm looking at this like, first off, I would have never thought in a million years, like, what's going on in Bulgaria with regards to Mortal Kombat? <laughs> right, um, right. How, so how did you identify, like, I got to talk to this person? Was it just something you kind of like cast a wide net saying, hey, if you want to share your story, come talk to me. How do you go about this? It was a wide net cast in a very specific square of the sea, I would say. I, I've always found it interesting that, you know, when you look at games, most people associate them with Japan or through Nintendo or um, the U.S. from Atari. But they kind of, there's a lot of cross-pollination that happened. Street Fighter II originated in Japan. It became, it was actually took off here before it became super popular in Japan and Mortal Kombat was, is very American made in a lot of ways. It's a lot of spectacle, a lot of, a lot of blood, a lot of shock value, but it's widely adopted all over the world. You know, it's sold, I think it's the best-selling fighting game franchise of all time at this point. It's even surpassed Super Smash Brothers Melee and the entire franchise. So um, I, I knew I wanted to talk to a lot of the pro players from the arcade scene, because that's the focus of this first book is the arcade era of Mortal Kombat. And I, I really just started kind of poking around, seeing who's who in, in this country, who's who over here. And uh, uh, Andrei Stefanov, or, or Dead, D-E-D, as he's known online, uh, had a fascinating story. Uh, but I didn't know it at first. All I knew is that people would tell me, oh, you got to talk to Dead because he's written a lot of like, 
the in-depth technical guides to how Mortal Kombat 1 and 2 and Ultimate MK3 especially work. And it just, the first thing I do in any interview is I say, tell me about your background. Where'd you grow up? How'd you discover Mortal Kombat? And his story kind of unfolded as we talked. And I gave it the larger context of, you know, I had no idea about the drug epidemic in, in Bulgaria around the time he was a kid and how that influenced how he came to Mortal Kombat. And that might be my favorite chapter in the book, actually, because it, it crystallizes what I wanted to do with this project in the first place. Yeah, and, you know, and I'll leave the reader um, to, you know, the audience to read it. But, you know, just this, the idea of this kid getting so good at Mortal Kombat that the drug dealers kind of leave him alone is, yeah. is, is a really interesting dynamic to this whole thing. Um, yeah, well, it's also interesting, too, because like that was around that time, as you know, I mean, you alluded to it earlier, what people thought of Mortal Kombat back then mm-hmm. versus today. And back then, all you'd hear about, oh, Mortal Kombat TV shows like The Simpsons, they're corrupting the youth. Well, Andre not only stood up to to drug dealers, but now he works in IT. He has a very accomplished career and he's still putting out combo and technical videos on Mortal Kombat. So Mortal Kombat, again, crystallizing what I wanted to do. my, my, My thesis, my point of ingress was this guy not only was a kid who didn't go around picking fights and killing other people, he stood up to people who very likely did and who has become a successful and surprise functioning adult. Yeah. <laughs> and and you know, if nothing else, maybe the thesis is Mortal Kombat, it's healing the world. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's kind of the opposite of what's happening on screen is happening in our hearts and souls. Speaking of souls, just don't let Shang Tsung get yours. That's the only caveat. Yeah, yeah. That, that's just that's just basic. Like you, you don't let if that guy comes saying, hey, buddy, can I see your soul? You say, no, no, Shang Tsung. No, no you cannot. cannot. No. Uh, were there any interviews you were surprised to get? Um, like just people like, I'm surprised this person said yes. Yeah, there were some. Um, one was, you know, John Tobias. One, one request he made of me. So here's the thing. I haven't been able to talk to Ed Boone or a lot of the people currently employed at NetherRealm because they're kind of behind the iron wall of Warner Brothers. And that's mm-hmm. to say nothing, not to throw any shade at Warner Brothers, but they too are... Um, a monolithic corporation and one one impediment i had in writing stay well and listen was getting blizzard's participation they knew about my book they uh they wanted to be involved they were going to let me talk to people if they had creative control and i said no because that's would kind of defeat the whole purpose of what i'm doing fun fact i interviewed at blizzard a few years ago and in the email from HR telling me, you know, recommending like, okay, here's where to park, here's some hotels in the area, here's some historical background, they actually plug my book. <laughs> so I found that pretty funny. Um, yeah. But it was, you know, John, I wasn't able to talk to Ed Boone. And one of my conditions in talking to John was that he, first of all, he, he said, don't really use me as like a marketing plug. I don't want to be like, you know, don't wave me around. It's like, hey, I'm mm-hmm. selling the book because I talked to this guy. But also, I, I really want to emphasize that everything Mortal Kombat started as, everything it's become was because of Ed and me. It's really important that we both get that recognition. And so um, that was very easy for me to agree to because, I mean, to me, those are two guys I grew up admiring when I was once upon a time on a computer science track and wanted to write video games, uh, you know, Ed Boon, Noob Saibot in the games, it's mm-hmm. you, they were kind of two of those creators, much like uh, Carmack and Romero at Id, who were very prominent, even though neither of them really wanted to be, but they were 
teams were so small back then that it started with those two and two other guys. So if not them, then who, <laughs> you know? So it was just, that was um, a good get for me, but he was, you know, also one of many and, and there's so much credit to go around as the book unfolds. Yeah. It, it absolutely reads like this is a situation where it takes a village to make something like this. And if you yeah. look at, you know, it's, it's very easy to get hung up on the, the names, the kind of the marquee names, but you know, somebody is out there you know fixing the code somebody's out there helping to put the costumes together right there's all kinds of folks that are involved in this yeah there, there were some perspectives i didn't quite expect um one interview i was also not surprised to get but excited was um i talked to to greg fishback and rob holmes two of the three co-founders of acclaim and greg's given interviews before but rob hasn't in fact when he told me he said i'm actually surprised nobody sought me out because this is Mortal Kombat and we played a big part in this. And mm -hmm. the perspective he had, he said that there, there was always some sometimes friendly and competitive, sometimes very stressful and competitive competition between Acclaim and Midway because at the time, it's almost like the PC master race of today where Midway viewed the arcades as like the top hardware. You know, home games are fine, but if you want the best graphics, the best controls, you go to the arcade. And that was certainly the case with Mortal Kombat for a little while, but Acclaim, you know, people from Acclaim I spoke to, several members of their marketing team as well said, look, Midway sold 23,000 Mortal Kombat cabinets. We sold tens of millions of Mortal Kombat cartridges. So we feel that we are just as responsible for Mortal Kombat be being a household name because we literally brought it to your house. And I was like, you know, I've never thought about it that before, but even as a kid, my parents weren't really keen on giving me quarters to quote unquote waste on arcade games. So I played it there when I could, but I played more at home. I was much more familiar with those versions because once you have the game, that's it. You don't have to pay to play anymore. Yeah, I certainly I have a similar experience. Like my, I probably can count on the number on one hand, the number of times I saw a Mortal Kombat cabinet in the wild, mm -hmm. but you know, not growing up around a lot of arcades and that kind of thing. But certainly I was very familiar with the home versions um, so I think that's a, that's a really fair point. And you, that's something that's really interesting about the book. Cause you do spend a lot of time talking about like sculptured software and all the companies that, you know, when you're a kid, you just see these like, logos flashed by as the game's booting up. But these are, you know, these are people, they have stories. They have, these are companies that are part of this larger cultural moment. Yeah. And it, it's something I've kind of encountered before, you know, even back in the nineties, when you'd say Diablo, people would say, oh, by Blizzard. And that kind of irked Blizzard North because they said, look, we made that game. And Blizzard mm -hmm. Entertainment, my, my, one of my roles is the author of, of Stay Well and Listen. I, I, I try not to insert myself. I kind of try to just be this uh, omniscient narrator. But I kind of, especially after Stay Well and Listen 2, I said, look, Diablo was successful because of the personalities of Blizzard North. But Blizzard Entertainment did build Battle.net and very forcefully suggest that they convert the game from turn-based to real-time. And it's arguable that without those two additions, Diablo may have been a flash in the pan. So it's, it, you know, it took two. And in this case, as you said, it, it took a village to, to raise Mortal Kombat. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> ironically, to borrow a term from somebody who probably was not a big fan of Mortal Kombat back in the day, <laughs> uh, but uh, it's nonetheless true. Um, and, and speaking of that whole idea of the kind of communal and community aspect of Mortal Kombat. I mean, there's this is something you could tie into a lot. And I and I think another thing that would set this apart from maybe a more kind of, like you said, sanitized sort of more, uh, you know, mass market corporate approach to this is that so much of it is built around the fans and the community and the culture that kind of crops up around the game. 
Um, and so, you know, you think about, you spend a lot of time on this idea that when you were, this, this game largely exists in 1992, well before the internet is a household utility, right? right? Not everybody's got access to it. And you certainly had people who had access to, you know, BBSs and that kind of thing and, and used net and, and, and whatnot. But having an actual centralized place to talk about video games was just something that didn't exist, right? So there's this sort of, you know, rumor spread, there's communal puzzle solving. It's like, hey, I did, you know, I, I did this and then Reptile appeared and that kind of thing, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and, you know, certainly that's something that we, that has been talked about at length. Like, you know, it's a lot of old folks kind of our age and older saying, <laughs> oh, you know, you kids don't know what it's like. We had to figure this stuff out for ourselves and that kind of thing. But I also wonder, you know, part of, what and, and this is something that maybe has we can kind of talk about with the series more broadly mortal Kombat kind of made secrets at stock and trade and you know would it have that same aura of mystique and and cultural cachet if we could if it came out today right all other things being equal it came out today uh where it could be endlessly shared and broken and discussed absolutely not that's that's a great point i'm really glad you mentioned that i i love the Saw movies, the first three anyway, but it was fairly frustrating to read critical reviews. You know, you know, horror movies kind of always get panned in general, but Saw was dismissed by a lot of critics as, oh, just torture porn. I'm like, no, if you want that, Hostel exists. That is torture porn. That movie is a waste. But Saw actually was, was really well written and kind of made me think. Um, Mortal Kombat, same thing it happens, still happens today, although it's it's more known by more people as a political talking point and a scapegoat mm -hmm. to, to, to get out of larger conversations. Um, Mortal Kombat to me has never been just about bloodshed. The it's all about the secrets, whether they exist or not. You know, error macros. Oh, that means this this Ermac. There's another secret ninja in the first game. He's red or orange or whatever. And you'd see even in magazines, they would doctor screenshots. You, you can go and read an old issue of EGM. I don't remember which one it is, but I, I source it in the book that shows a red ninja. And, you know, this was EGM, the same company that, that pulled the famous and infamous April Fool's playing, prank of claiming Sheng Long was playable in Street Fighter mm -hmm. and, and Sonic was playable in Smash Brothers. And then in the next game, he actually was. So uh, maybe a bit of self-fulfilling prophecy there. Um, it was really special to me because writing about that gave me sort of a podium to say, this is what Mortal Kombat's really about. Fans have always known it. And now hopefully you'll know it too. But because it also, this was another point I never really thought about. Mortal Kombat was what it's, it's known among other things as being the game that introduced the rating systems, mm -hmm. but there's a broader context. That's just the surface. The broader context is it changed the perception as video games as being toys, which was the angle Nintendo was pushing, to being something that could appeal to players of all ages. Mortal Kombat did that. And I think that's because, you know, I mean, a lot of fans, you can watch esports today and people will, will bust out a fatality or a babality of friendship just to kind of poke fun if they really just, you know, mop the floor with you. But most, most pro matches end with just a quick punch after finishing because they don't care about the fatality they've seen them a million times they just want to get to the match the mm -hmm. core fighting um at home on the playground it was all about oh man i just saw this video game with the arcade and this guy peeled off his face and he's a skeleton and he burned another guy alive if you heard that mm -hmm. 
you would not believe that because video games back then were Super Mario Brothers and Sonic the Hedgehog. That, that sort of thing did not happen in games. And so that was part of the fun, the fun of almost playing a game of telephone where your friend goes to the arcade, he sees something, eventually he tells you, and maybe it's changed a little because his memory is a little off. And Mortal Kombat, one thing I love and that I'll, I'll get into in future volumes is how uh, Ed Boon, after John Tobias had left and, and, and Boone's team at Midway and later another realm kind of tried to push back against the internet, spoiling everything almost before games were released, like with the advent of the crypt in Mortal Kombat 5, where you have thousands of coffins. Each one might hold, you know, a piece of concept art or some background music or a new fatality or a new costume. It's been interesting seeing Mortal Kombat try to stay ahead of all of these tools that could potentially take away the mystery that are a mystery mm -hmm. that's always surrounded it. It's, it's one reason I, I really didn't care for uh, MK8, formerly known as Mortal Kombat versus DC Universe. The introduction of superheroes was a problem because DC didn't want you ripping Superman's head off. Even mm -hmm. though that's a fantasy of mine. There's a huge Batman fan. But beside the point, um, you know, there were no secrets in it. There were no secret characters. There were no secret fatalities. There were no secret stages. There were there was nothing. That game as a Mortal Kombat game to me was a failure because of that specifically. And that's interesting to bring up too because you certainly look at how like Ed Boon talks on Twitter. Um, he's notorious for trolling, misleading. Yeah, you know he's like there's an element. You know when you look at like the early days of arcades, it's not far removed from the kind of like carnival barkers. You're just trying to like get people <laughs> to step right up, that kind of thing. Yeah. And the thing that I love about nether realm and how they approach stuff is they still have that spirit in this very, you know, they're this part of this very large corporate structure, but there's still that spirit of like, we want to kind of, you know, flim flam people a little bit. We want to kind of mess with them and troll them. Um, and, and that's certainly something that's very, very endearing about it. And, you know, you, you mentioned, so I was a Street Fighter guy. I should, I should probably uh, clarify. Street Fighter was my thing. If you if you could see over my shoulder, you kind of, you see my kind of large Street oh, Fighter. Oh, I do, I do see it there. now. That's awesome. Okay, like, yeah. yeah um, you know, uh, that was very heavily influential to me as a kid. Um, still one of my all-time favorite games. And Mortal Kombat was one like, you know, this is neat, but I just didn't like it as much. Um, mm -hmm. But it wasn't until, it, it, it's kind of weird how, this is reversed a little bit where street fighter has gone off in a direction that frankly, I'm not a big fan of, but mortal Kombat's becoming the thing that's like, this is actually what I want out of these games. Yeah. Um, so it, it is kind of interesting just to think about how the series has evolved uh, in terms of what it is and what it represents and kind of almost by necessity. Yeah. That's why, you know, I, I mentioned street fighter several times throughout the, the book, but there's also, I dedicate an entire chapter to the street fighter versus mortal Kombat rivalry. And mm -hmm. what I heard from fans and some developers was really fascinating. Some people had um, qualms that might seem very frivolous at first. Like one street fighter fan said, I don't like how when you jump kick in mortal Kombat, it knocks the guy down. And it's like, Oh, mm -hmm. why not? Who cares? He's like, well, because in street fighter you land and then you can go into a combo. And how you do combos in Street Fighter, as you know, is it's all about inputting moves quickly so that you cancel animations and go right into the next move. Mm -hmm. Mortal Kombat, you had to knock them down because its combos were juggles. And yeah. both, both camps were really talking about the same thing, something that required 
extremely precise timing and dexterity, but the execution was just a little different. But then there were other things that I've talked about for 30 plus years uh, about such as, you know, Mortal Kombat has a block button and Street Fighter you hold back. And mm -hmm. my issue with, I, I'm a Street Fighter guy, by the way, I I, I, I love them both. Why not both.gif? That's my camp. Uh, you know, right. it's boring, but there it is. But the, the thing about Street Fighter that I liked was I, I think that mechanically, um, it was a lot more sound very early on compared to Mortal Kombat, which a lot of players said, you know, it wasn't really until Mortal Kombat 2 that like we can take this seriously. Um, but if you watch the attract mode for Street Fighter, you get things like Ryu's height and weight and blood type. Ooh, mm -hmm. But Mortal Kombat, you're getting biographies that it's kind of pulling you into a story. And yeah. That was a new thing for fighting games, which were a new thing in and of themselves. That was, you know, a lot of people, it's interesting. If you like Street Fighter, you probably like it. At least back then, you liked it for the gameplay. It was very technically mm -hmm. sound. But Mortal Kombat, it had a lot of flash and spectacle. But the characters, some people just played to see, oh, what happens if I beat the game with Sonya? What happens? Does mm -hmm. she capture Kano? Does Kano capture her? And now there's a sequel. I mean, while Capcom was iterating on one game, Midway mm -hmm. was putting out sequels and continuing a story. And it was always fascinating to see who's going to survive, who's going to die, who's in one of the backgrounds and, oh, how did they get there? Why are they there? Mm -hmm. That was just, uh, that was as big a source of conversation as the secrets and the fatalities. Yeah, and you know the certainly from a Street Fighter perspective, the characters were a big thing in there too, right? Like you know mm -hmm. those were very and yeah, I would say Street Fighter Mortal Kombat in terms of like character rosters, they were kind of the top, and then like some of the SNK stuff was pretty memorable. But then you had just like the just everything else, like Primal Rage. Who cares, right? You yeah. had um, all these other knockoffs of both games that were kind of going in different directions, but none of them just clicked the way. You know, like I have a soft spot for Eternal Champions, but nobody cares about Eternal Champions, right? It's a bad game, yeah. but the characters are great. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. And like, there, yeah. there are all these entry points for people. But it's funny how this has kind of come full circle. We're, we're 30 mm -hmm. years later, Street Fighter's turning 35. They just announced Street Fighter 6. I'm not really sold on the art style yet, but mm -hmm. we'll see. But, but still today... Every now and then you'll have a King of Fighters or, or a Blaz Blue or something that will come up for a little bit, but it's still primarily Street Fighter Mortal Kombat. Those are still yeah. the kings of the mountain. Yeah, and, you know, uh, it is, it, you know, like, as we say this, KOF 15 just came out recently, and mm -hmm. I would love to play KOF 15. I haven't had a chance yet. Um, also, I know that as soon as I step online, I'm going to be absolutely humbled. And, yeah. you know, I, that's one of the larger problems of fighting games in general is that, <laughs> you know, the hardcore kind of gets their hands on. So you have, like, maybe a brief, window of a couple hours on release day where you might be able to actually be competitive um except with i because I, I played that dragon ball game that that happened like i started that like the day it came out and no, no that, that was no there was no chance i was i'm, I'm like you know what it, it's pretty that's at least i got that <laughs> yeah at least there is that and i mean it's funny too i i actually do cover that the reason I, I chose the arcade era is because you can see, I, I got hold of information no one else has really had before, thanks to Ken Fidesna, who opened up his meeting notes he would take in high-level executive meetings with Neil Nicastro, the head of Midway, where you could actually, I actually chart the sales of Mortal Kombat 1, 2, 3, Ultimate 3, 4, and you can see, I mean, Mortal Kombat 4 is something sold something around like 4,000 units, mm -hmm. which was just a abysmal and I, I actually love that game it's it's my favorite of the arcade era um but wow four thousand the best endings too yeah 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 i oh yeah <laughs> they're so <laughs> terrible but they're so good but they're so good that's kind of thing like yeah, Mortal Kombat. it's the charm 
it's the charm that like it got really cheesy. I mean, Mortal Kombat 3, fatality, you explode and you have like 16 skulls, eight rib cages. It never really yeah. took itself too seriously. It's kind of like Resident Evil. It probably wasn't intentional, but it's still kind of fun in a way. Yeah. And um the thing is, like, I, I know that was kind of a tangent, but to bring it back, um the problem, one reason arcade games kind of declined with arcades was that they got so complicated that casual mm-hmm. users were just like, it's really no fun to spend a dollar or 50 cents on this and get killed in like 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. I'm out because games were getting more complex, more story driven, just longer fighting mm-hmm. games just didn't evolve in that way. That would come later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And certainly, you know, we're getting a bit far afield from the, the ground covered in round one here, but mm-hmm. you know, I would say the current Mortal Kombat has been excellent in that regard because it is comparatively much more streamlined than the systems that you I mean that you'd see in Street Fighter, certainly more than you'd see in an Arc Systems fighting game, which are completely Byzantine to me at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, Mortal Kombat is still okay. You got your combo system, it's dial a combo, you've got the X-ray, you got your super moves. It's pretty straightforward beyond that. Like there's not a ton of stuff that you can really get lost in you know you just you learn the stuff and you're good to go as opposed to trying to juggle all these different meters and systems and parries and stuff like that i, I think that's one of the core lessons of just creativity in general so often the less we have to work with the the cooler stuff we come up with and mm-hmm. you can see that like it's you know mortal Kombat. the contemporary games are very accessible to casual audiences you can play those games just for the very cinematic quality story but then you mm-hmm. go online you watch folks like like Sonic Fox and what they do. Mm. And it's just like, oh, wow, I never even would have thought to put the three tools I have together that way. It, it really is appealing to everyone for, for the first time. I mean, I would go back to Mortal Kombat 9 and say that in 2011, but that's something that, you know, in, in the arcade days, it was kind of, you're either here for the story or the gameplay or in Mortal Kombat's case, both, but it was getting more complex at the same time. Yeah, and Sonic Fox. That's a the, the, the Sonic Fox is just on another level of existence. It's yes, yeah, they're fantastic. They're, they're yes, yeah, they they are by far my favorite uh, fighting game community player. But um, so I want to talk about this whole idea of you know the arcade scene. You know, one of the more amusing anecdotes in the book. It's just I was kind of chuckling at myself as I was reading this. Was uh, about James Fink, who was one of the. Uh, developers working on the home ports of Mortal Kombat. But we would also, you know, um, after kind of learning about the games, it's very funny at the first, you you talk about the anecdote where he was bothered by the game because they had a machine set up outside his office and people were coming and playing all (laughs) his day. So he just got good at the game to make people stop coming by. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, he he also amasses a posse, a crew of of disciples, I think is the word you use. Yeah. Uh, And they go around That's how they referred themselves. that, That was their term, actually. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Yeah. So like, <laughs> which I think is even better. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, they're going around hustling these venues. So we have these like crews kind of like breakdance battling almost uh, at the arcades. Is do you think you can draw a direct line between this and kind of what would become the fighting game community in some ways? Oh, absolutely. Because that, that's definitely where it started. And, you know, I, I believe the first fighting game was, was a boxing game. And then came things like Karate Champ. And, and you know, Fink told me, I was going from arcade to arcade to challenge people in those games. And that's what you did. Even with Street Fighter 2 Mortal Kombat, if you were a serious competitor, there wasn't much money in the line, but you'd go to travel around as much as you your situation allowed. And you would you would kind of scout competition, take on the best of the best, and your reputation would grow. I, I ended up interviewing James Wilson 
who who largely played in Florida because people in other countries were like, oh, Jason Wilson was the best at Mortal Kombat 2. Everybody knows that. I'm like, do they? And I, you know, I, I tracked him down and talked to him about that. And that led to arcades, um, you know, hosting small tournaments, local tournaments, you know, might pay to get in. You might win 50 bucks, maybe a couple hundred. But even before that, between just playing for the competition, you'd kind of start, you'd hustling, you'd put money down on games. And that led to, you know, a lot of incidences in certain areas. But um, uh, that was just kind of part of the culture. And just as time went on, and as the Long Live MK series will chart, that became more and more formalized until you have stages today like Evo. Well, Evo itself was, you know, it started out very humbly. Like that was just like, wasn't it just in like uh, the back room of a video game store or something like that? It was yeah. like a pretty, it was a pretty low rent affair. Yeah. Um, and now it's, you know, headlining stages in Las Vegas. And, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just amazing to kind of go back and get these little glimpses of what things used to be, um, right. you know, prior to the internet era and prior to the big kind of competitive uh, hootenannies, I guess, for lack of a better word. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, um, it was, uh, it was it, it, and I like how that spirit is still kind of alive at Evo. You know, there's the grand mm-hmm. stage for games like Street Fighter V, Injustice 2, MK11, but you also have people organizing tournaments in their hotel rooms in games that aren't on the grand stages. You know, mm-hmm. Street Fighter, or Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo, which I'm not, I was never really sure like why that became the version because that's so broken. Like if you're allowed to play Akuma, what are you even doing here? I, uh-huh. I just, I love Street Fighter 2. Hyper Fighting, that's maybe my maybe my favorite arcade game of all time. Or uh-huh. my favorite fighting game of all time. But um, yeah, you can still find that that sort of spirit just kind of in pockets yeah. of, of, of the grander stages. Yeah, the weird fan-made anime fighters running off some dude's laptop in a hotel room. <laughs> like that to me is really, you know, in a lot of ways, kind of the truer idea of what fighting games can really be. Um, you know, like, cause I'm not, I mean, I mean, uh, I, I work in esports. Well, I shouldn't say I work in esports. I've, I've like done a lot of stuff in my, my day job here on campus, mm-hmm. um, you know, with esports and trying to get that on campus, but I myself am not a huge consumer of esports. I don't follow league of legends or anything like that, but I'll watch an Evo. I'll watch a fighting game tournament. Same. And it's like, cause to me, that's just, it feels like it's the sort of purest form of competition uh, in those spaces because it's really just two people doing mind games on each other in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it's also, I feel like that's sort of like, it's almost like um, baseball or basketball and that it, it is really easy to grasp if you're a casual viewer. Whereas mm-hmm. as much as I love first person shooters, they can be hard to follow because the players are moving so fast. And also mm-hmm. like, you know, it's, it's ironic how the type, the level of competition is inversely proportional to their graphic settings. You got to turn all those graphic settings off. So it's just a, a few polygons because you need all those frames and it's just so hard to follow. But, you know, like you said, fighting games, I, you can actually follow this back and forth. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's just the easiest one to, ex- yeah, to explain to somebody who has no idea what's going on. Like, okay, that guy's going to fight that guy. Right. And that's yeah. pretty much it. Like right, then, right. You, then you have like, if you have a little camera on the side of the actual players, it's fun to watch them kind of interact with each other and like the pop-offs and stuff like that. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan. So I hope that eventually Evo will be back in person because I do always like checking in on that. It's just um, not, not the same. Obviously the circumstances are the same for pretty much everyone, but man, when, you know, just to hear a full crowd of people losing their minds, like mm-hmm. they're at a wrestling show or something is just so that like you know crowds are part and parcel with professional wrestling and really all any live sport but i would say the same of, of competitive fighting games too 
Yeah, I mean, you think about like the great moments, like uh, you know Wong versus Daigo and the and third yeah. strike and the parry, which is like the great, honestly, the great esports moment of all time. Um, and how the crowd just gets progressively louder and more unhinged with every single <laughs> parry. Um, and like you're you're in that moment, you're like, yeah, this is incredible. Like if you know anything about third strike, like this shouldn't be happening. This yeah. should be impossible. That's it's, why everybody's going crazy over it. Yeah, it's just so wild that clip still holds up. I agree. Number one esports moment of all time. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and but what's interesting is that I feel like Mortal Kombat has never really had that same esports cachet. And I'm not really sure why. I mean, certainly they've run tournaments and stuff like that, and it's been on stage at Evo, but it's just never quite grasped the way that Street Fighter has. And I I wonder if it comes back to that sort of like um bias i guess a little bit against um the style of it and and the content uh among a lot of players who might have seen it as primarily flash i think it could be i mean you raise you raise a good point i think there are a lot of there's kind of a confluence of, of factors there i think one is still to this day capcom will stick with the same game for years i mean street fighter mm-hmm. 5 launched in 2016 um and only six years later did they announce a sequel which probably won't be out until next year um, and they've iterated on it, but at its core, it is still that game. Mm-hmm. Um, NetherRealm has kind of alternated where, you know, their first game was Mortal Kombat 9 in 2011. Uh, a couple of years later, they had Injustice. A couple of years after that, Mortal Kombat 10. A couple of years after that, Injustice 2. And now we're on Mortal Kombat 11. And so I feel like they've kind of conditioned their community to expect like maybe one, maybe two big showings at like Evo and, and certain mm-hmm. cups and things like that. And then we're, our next thing's going to be out. And, you know, DLC expansions give it a shot in the arm. But uh, I would say that even though Mortal Kombat hasn't had a moment like that, I feel like the competitors such as Fo- Sonic Fox, Daigo, Justin Wong, uh, perfect legend and the stories of the kind of the rivalries between the players and most of whom are friends. Um, that is really the spectacle. Now, just yeah. as you, you follow wrestling for characters, you're also watching, you're following competitors rather than games. And, you yeah. know, watching Sonic Fox play Mortal Kombat is so enjoyable because of what he's doing. That's sort of a moment every time he picks up a controller. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think that's just something we're seeing in the evolution of, of Mortal Kombat as a sport. I mean, the interesting thing there too, is that, you know, it wasn't until Mortal Kombat nine that Boone and his team actually said, okay, let's actually make this for competitive before, you know, they would try their best to balance, but it wasn't really a factor. It certainly wasn't a factor during the 3d era because they were like every other game genre, they were just starting trying to figure out what the heck they were doing in three dimensions. And in, you know, with the, with the arcade era of Mortal Kombat, it was kind of like, well, we're going to balance this as best we can, but it's not like we have people who study this for a living. And so if we hear about a grossly overpowered character, we'll roll out a patch. But even then Uh you were, you were kind of constrained by things like, okay, an arcade distributor might buy an upgrade chip if that game is still selling well. Mm-hmm. And he uh, arcade operators from there might install it if that cabinet is still doing well, or they might say, ah, you know what, I'm going to move in another NBA jam or an NFL blitz or WWF WrestleMania. Mm-hmm. So your arcade might not have the latest and greatest. And because of that, if the game is quote unquote broken, that, you know, the players of that game might've moved on to another thing. There's just so many mm-hmm. factors back then. Yeah. And, you know, it's, 
really we talk about Mortal Kombat 9 and again this is kind of getting into future books but mm -hmm. that really felt like the reinvention of the series in you know multiple ways not just in terms of okay we're starting from scratch kind of we're retconning or rebooting a little bit um but also just this is almost like we are redefining what this series is it we're building it for the home, home console we're building it for the hd era and the internet connected era um and, and that's honestly where i got into it like that's where i kind of came back after many years of just sort of like checking in out once in a while and be like oh that's still going okay um this is the one where i'm like yeah wow this this was pretty great like they, they can do some real fun stuff in here um and it didn't it didn't have it didn't hurt that uh street fighter was just kind of going further and further to that really hardcore competitive scene that i just do not you know i enjoy watching but i cannot really be a part of Right. I think that Mortal Kombat 9 was successful largely because, you know, people said like it, it was literally a reboot, but very mm -hmm. specifically, it was a remake of Ultimate Mortal Kombat 3, mm -hmm. which was was probably not in terms of sales. In terms of sales, Mortal Kombat 2 was the height of the arcade era of that franchise. But um, as I as I write in the book, Ultimate Mortal Kombat 3 was successful because it really introduced the game's combo system which which is still an extent today uh it introduced things like linkers where you can jump in with a punch or certain kicks and flow right into mm -hmm. a combo from there um but most importantly that roster there is always some combination of the characters from umk3 present in every mortal Kombat going forward that determined its success and mortal Kombat 9 had literally everyone from ultimate mm -hmm. Mortal Kombat three that was like it was really the safest bet like we already made this game we've already told these stories over three games this is the best foundation to build on because it's basically it's going to be a success we just don't know how much of a success right and it turned out to be huge um, that was yeah. a, a big fan of that game I think they've only gotten better since so um though we'll talk about about like kind of you know how we define better and that sort of thing in a moment. Mm -hmm. um, I want to come back and talk more about the era that this book is about. And, you know, a lot of it, of course, is focused on the arcade. The arcade is where Midway was focusing all their attention because they're making their money. But of course, a lot of folks were playing them at home. And those home ports, you know, they are subject to compromises. Obviously, there's a the really well-known one. Um, Nintendo wouldn't let all the blood and gore and fatalities into the Super NES port. You know, as you mentioned, you, uh, and we'll talk some more about this in a minute, I'm sure. You know, this is at the height of the Senate violence hearings uh, on video game violence, which, you know, what a what a what a spectacle that was. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and so you have like, you know, OK, now it's not blood, it's sweat. OK, sure. Sweat flies that far. Sure. All right. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, the, so, I, so that's pretty well known. Right. And the Genesis outselling like what, four to one uh five to, Nintendo version. Yeah. five to one yeah mm -hmm. uh because of that also fairly well-known well-worn territory at this point but you know there's also things you point out in talking to the developers and the folks who worked in these games you know the super nintendo having less responsive controls and i played it primarily on the genesis when i did play it so i didn't really know that um you know and certainly i didn't have really arcade to, com to compare it to um but the one thing you find uh, that, that you talk about in here that stuck with me that i had no idea because i'm fairly well versed in this stuff but um, I had no idea about Mortal Kombat Nitro. Uh, this is the one that jumped out. I'm like, I had no idea this existed. So uh, explain what this is and kind of how you found out about it. Sure. Yeah, that's another great question. I didn't know that existed either until I started researching. I think because today there are so many ROM hacks made by people that a Mortal Kombat 1 for Super Nintendo with blood 
wouldn't be a huge surprise. It kind of would because there are certain sprites for the fatalities that are just not in the game. So it probably mm-hmm. could not be done. But um, this is something I, I learned about from um, if someone mentioned it to me, like, hey, are you going to cover Mortal Kombat Nitro? I think I got it at Twitter DM and I thought, well, I better. So I started Googling and I realized that James Fink was kind of the one pushing for this. And so I talked to, you know, there's a whole chapter about Nitro uh, where I talked to James Fink. He, he gave me the design document that was drafted for it. Um, I talked to, to Acclaim. I talked to Acclaim about it. I talked to, to Jeff Peters, who was kind of the, the manager of the Mortal Kombat projects over at Sculptured. And what it was, was it was going to be sort of a, a champion edition or a turbo hyper fighting. It was going to not only add blood and the original fatalities in a re-release of Mortal Kombat for Super Nintendo, but it was going to fix the controls. There were going to be new fatalities. There were going to be, you know, Mortal Kombat has really kind of always been about alignments. Characters are actually good or evil. And so even as a kid, I would just play a game like, oh, okay, I'm Liu Kang. So I'm not going to kill Sonya, but I'm going to kill, you know, Kano or whatever. Um, you paid way more attention to the story than I did at that point. Dude, I did. I love it. I was one of those, I was pouring over the biographies and the manuals and the strategy guides and stuff, but it was just another way to play a game I'd beaten umpteen times. And that's, that was, that was Nitro. I actually, um, in the, in the edition of the book that will have a lot of these full color shots, I have, so there was one in Super Nintendo, Johnny Cage's neutered fatality was he like kicked you through a chest and you kind of like, oh, shook and then fell down and that was it. Well, Fink said, we're going to keep that one, but he actually showed me as a prototype of it. He please streamed it for me and cage does the kick, but a lot of like bones and blood and organs fly out the back. And I'm like, Ooh, now that's actually a, a good version of that fatality. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it never happened because by that point, just fiscally acclaim said, you know, Mortal Kombat two is out in arcades. We have the rights to make that. Let's not go back to the well. Let's dig this new well. that's even more successful. So that's what happened there. Yeah. So, and that's again, one of those things, like I should point out just for the record, this is how out of it with the story I was. I thought that Sub-Zero was the good guy for the longest time. Um, that was his younger brother in two. He was yes. a nice guy. He did. Yeah. He did. Yeah. He turned face, but that's because the that's old right. Sub-Zero died. Yeah. And it was just <laughs> he's dead. awful. He's not, like, yeah. <laughs> like a terrible person. Yeah. Yeah. He's the worst. But yeah. I'm like, oh, <laughs> Blue Ice Ninja. He must be a good guy. And the scary fire breathing uh, other ninja must be the bad guy again yep. i was a kid it made sense to me going back I'm like, i completely misunderstood this so i owe scorpion an apology <laughs> yeah i'm sure i'm sure he'll accept it just you yeah know, if he, he says seemed, get over here do not do that do no, not no, i'm get just gonna stay there. over i'm gonna stay yeah. I'll, I'll stay here social yeah. distance you stay, stay there. there do not go yeah. yeah exactly that's it i actually did um at the height of the pandemic before we shut down campus i had a sign uh, of scorpion wearing a mask saying stay over there i, um, I love outside that my office door it's it's great <laughs> yeah uh but uh you know that so that's one of those really kind of surprising things and, and you know it's maybe not like earth shattering but it's a cool thing to know was there anything else that you know when you were you're going through this obviously you know mortal Kombat. you were a fan um, but you're also spending a lot of time in this world, digging in and doing all these interviews. What did you learn, maybe in general, but also what, like, was there something that surprised you or what surprised you most while you're working on this book? Um, there, there were things in terms of development, there were projects like Nitro that, again, I'd never heard of. Um, but honestly, what surprised me most had nothing to do with development. It, it was how Mortal Kombat just what it meant to certain people. Andre Stefanov, again, he, he has my favorite chapter. There's also a moment where I, I interviewed a guy named Dustin who uh, I've become pretty good friends with on online. 
he's such a positive person. And yet I found out that when he was little, he was too young to stop his dad from hitting his mom. He just couldn't be in that situation. So he would climb out his bedroom window, race over to the 7-Eleven, and just kind of stare at a Mortal Kombat 2 cabinet that was an escape. And, and the, the manager on duty on the graveyard shift said, yeah, he, he knew nothing about why this kid was hanging out, just that he was there. And he said, all right, kid, if you sweep the floors, I'll put it on free play for you. And this that became this escape for Dustin. Wow. And I just thought that's, first of all, it's, it's, it's the opposite of what any parent would think Mortal Kombat does. Mm-hmm. Uh, they probably thought maybe the dad played Mortal Kombat with because of how he treated his family. But mm-hmm. uh, Dustin today is just such a cool, positive person. He's, he's an amazing photographer. He has a huge Mortal Kombat collection. He actually poses his figures from companies like Diamond Select Toys and Storm Collectibles into, into uh, well, the figures are made so that you can actually recreate poses from fatalities people love his stuff he'll when he meets someone he'll say hey what's your address and he'll just send them a mortal Kombat t-shirt or whatever he's just a cool person and i've i kind of consider him like the figurehead of mortal Kombat's community that's community with a k yeah. um because it's i've always had with always with a k always um but I've, I've really only had positive experiences with people i've interviewed and that really surprised me. Well, I didn't expect anyone to like, I didn't expect to interview some serial killer or Kano mm-hmm. in real life, but it was just cool that across the board, and I talked to over 60 people, every single person um, was positively influenced by Mortal Kombat. And it was wonderful. Like that actually does warm my heart a little bit because like, you know, I, I remember growing up, like that was the, the you know, Mortal Kombat was the bad game. That was the scary, violent one. You can't be playing that's that. Right. It's going to make kids murderers. No. And so like, you know, you're a kid, you're kind of like, oh my God, what if that's true? Like it's just, yeah. Well, know, I, I had, I would go to a friend's like, I'm playing house. Street Fighter. I'm over here. I'm a good boy. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Of course, every now and then you'd have to get hit where like they vomit or something. That was always kind of, yeah. but uh, that was as bad as it got. But... That was as bad as it got, but it's pretty uh, you bad. Know, like, don't get me wrong. Punch somebody so hard they throw up. It's gross for sure. But, it's very um, gross. You know, we had, uh, I was friends with, with kids who lived behind me. And when we go to their house, they knew I knew the blood code from Mortal Kombat. We'd only mm-hmm. enter it if their mom was around because if she saw one drop of blood that's it they were grounded i had to go home and we were just kind of like i don't know it's like the thing is and this is a tale as old as time forbidden fruit is sweetest we just wanted to see it more because we weren't allowed to see it if she would have just let us play we probably would have get gotten tired of it yeah uh so yeah it was just kind of one of those psychological things that i've thought a lot about over the course of, of writing this book and which is again part of why i wanted to write about it in the first place yeah. And that's, that's, I mean, that's really, really interesting. I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, like, you know, I, I love the idea that, you know, the kids who grew up playing Mortal Kombat are probably super well-adjusted and the kids who grew up playing Smash Brothers are probably the ones you have to watch out for. <laughs> yeah. They're probably like all internet trolls <laughs> to a degree, but some of them yeah. are nice trolls, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a difference between, you know, being cruel and just, you know, shit posting and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, like Ed Boone is a shit poster, but he's he a nice shit poster. Yeah. He's a nice one. He seems perfectly reasonable, perfectly agreeable. And he just likes to mess with people on the internet. That's right. Um, you know, because you, you know, you can't do it in the arcades anymore. So you got to have that out. <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, and I want to talk about that a little bit, because this is something I wanted to uh, get to, because, you know, you, you spent a lot of time talking about Mortal Kombat and its place really in kind of the zeitgeist of the 1990s, but especially um, around video game violence, which was, you know, part of that zeitgeist. And as you mentioned earlier, 
it is one of the games that led to the creation of the rating system, arguably the main one that did. I mean, certainly you had stuff like you know, Night Trap and Lethal Enforcers and things like that, but Mortal Kombat was the game. Um, and so fairly unfairly, that's a major part of the game's history, but it also does seem really reductive. Um, and so, you know, we talked a bit about like why Mortal Kombat thrived and other, you know, because it had its own imitators, right? You could argue that, you know, Mortal Kombat was a response to Street Fighter, but there were just tons of games that tried to copy Mortal Kombat. And, you know, so really, like, why was that? Like, why, you know, why didn't something like you mentioned tattoo assassins, um, you know, you, you think about time killers and all these other, you know, even some stuff that um, Midway and Acclaim would try to make later, like Primal Rage just never took off to the same degree. Was it the story? Was it, you know, the the secrets? Was it just a combination of all these things? Yeah, that's a that's yet another great question. I think that it was again several factors depending on your vantage point. To mm-hmm. to coin up manufacturers, I mean, the, the thing about arcade games is as soon as you released one, you had to be like two months into the next one because so many of them would come and go. There was so much competition everywhere you turn, and so I I think that Mortal to publishers to manufacturers, Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter were the two archetypes because they made the most money. When you think about it, most fighting games derive from, from one or the other, maybe with shades of both, but predominantly one or the other. It wasn't until later that, you know, with 3D fighting games that we saw kind of new molds. And then Smash Brothers is, is, is its own thing, but it has a lot of imitators as well. But, for, you know, so for manufacturers, it's definitely earnings. I think for... Uh, for fans, they gravitated to the styles of those games because they liked Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Art of Fighting, King of Fighters, those were very derivatives of Street Fighter 2. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, one or both of those was made by ex-Capcom developers. I think one was the creator of Street Fighter 1 who kind of never really, who wanted to do more with it, but there just wasn't time or resources there. That sounds um, right, but I, I don't know. I, I can't I, tell you. I, I think it's Art of Fighting, but you know, even like Capcom poked fun at, at one of those franchises with with Dan, I think, introduced, introduced in Street Fighter yeah. Alpha, who who was intentionally like just a, the, the weakest character, just a joke, yeah. but you could win with him if you were good. Well, they also, I think, and uh, SNK gave a little bit back. I know there's one of the King uh, King of Fighters characters, or, or well, the, I should say, King of Fighters is all their characters together. But like, um, was it was it Art of Fighting or Fatal Fury? There was a character who was kind of like a, a riff on Ryu, uh, who was like using his moves and all that stuff, and you know, yeah. not one of the stronger characters. I, I forget, but it was it was there was it was mutual. There was a bit of back and forth going on. Yeah, I feel like even um, Mortal Kombat Six, Mortal Kombat Deception was. Um, was one of the 3d ones the second one i think a lot of people feel it's the best of that era but even they were going weird places they had a guy named cobra who looked like ken masters in a hoodie and i was like what what are we doing here you know yeah um but uh, i really do think that for, for primarily those reasons those two were just so popular that mm-hmm. they kind of set the mold it's but the thing is what i've noticed over the course of writing these stories is a lot of the imitators fail because they don't understand what actually makes those games popular for example you saw a lot of well remember before fps was fps it was the doom clone and a lot of games mm-hmm. looked like doom and you thought oh it's it's the, it's the blood right no it's it's the feel it's the flow of movement it's the weapons it's the level design and that's why you had games that were successful in their own right such as star wars dark forces which really had no gore it was still mm-hmm. violent it was just kind of the, the sanitized star wars violence and um you know, tattoo assassins, games like that had like, oh, look at all our fatalities, most of which are 
really dumb and look awful. Well, Mortal mm-hmm. Kombat wasn't successful because of the fatalities. That might have been the first thing you kind of associated with it. But as mm-hmm. you played, you realized it was kind of mechanically sound to varying degrees in its own way. And the characters look cool. And especially mm-hmm. Mortal Kombat 1, like no one had seen graphics that photorealistic for the time. The characters were huge and they looked like mm-hmm. real people. That that was a big deal coming from, you know, I love Street Fighter 2, but some of those moves they do are just impossible. The anatomy just doesn't work that way. And they don't in Mortal Kombat either. But you mm-hmm. learn that, oh, these were actors filmed. They actually took these poses that kind of added a certain X factor, je ne sais quoi, to it that made it kind of special. I feel like I'm playing a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just feel like, you know, it's like Diablo clones. Oh, it's the loot. Well, no, it's actually clicking and the feedback you get from killing yeah. a skeleton is really really good but if and, you just yeah. you know if you think it's all loot then you can have your game but it probably won't reach the heights of diablo yeah i think about like you know it, tor- i tried playing torchlight 3 and being like okay one of these and then i just gave up on it because I'm like it, it doesn't feel right and the the, the it's just too slow and you know I'm still like nothing has really kind of matched that. And so I think it's definitely one of those things like it's hard to imitate. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to innovate, but you know, trying to imitate can be really, really hard too to do it well. Um, yeah. Especially for the team that made Torchlight, cause those were actually X Blizzard North guys. But the problem mm-hmm. is they were, they were trying to, to imitate themselves. Yeah. And that's really, that's arguably harder to do because you mm-hmm. can't, People are going to say, oh, you just made another one of those. But if you try to do something new, it's almost like when Nintendo goes off off path with with Zelda or Mario. Like, I love Majora's Mask, but you have Zelda fans who are like, well, that's not Zelda. But then they come up with something like Twilight Princess, which is very derivative. And they're like, oh, this is just the same Zelda. You know, yeah. what are you supposed to do? You can't please everybody. No, it's it's really hard. And, you know, sometimes it's just like, I don't really know why this isn't working for me, but it's not, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's... That, that was me with Torchlight 3. I'm just like, this. everything about this is fine. It's just not working for me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but speaking of that, obviously Mortal Kombat's been around, you know, coming up on 30 years this year. Uh, you know, certainly we're in a new age for the series, a, rena- a re-renaissance. Uh, it's critically well-received, sells extremely well. But, you know, you're a longtime fan. You've been, you've been writing about this stuff. You're, like, immersed right now in that sort of the magic and kind of mystique of the arcade era. Does it kind of feel sometimes like something is missing that, you know, now that it's kind of, you know, it, it's like when, a, like when a rock band, right, that was edgy and dangerous or, or to even more, um, you know, recent, you know, you watch the Super Bowl. And uh, all of a sudden you're just Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre and these guys who are like edgy and dangerous and, you know, kind of like, you know, you're, you're coming like, wow, there's, there's something different and kind of, you know, uh, dangerous about these guys. Right. And now they're just they're at the halftime show. They're they're there and your mom's bopping along to them. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, does that feel like and I don't know really where I'm going with this, because certainly the games are great. I think they're as good as they've ever been, if not better. But it kind of feels like there's a, a, a sense of mystery, maybe an edge missing um, with it becoming part of this cultural lexicon. I, th- I think that too, but I think that's because of a certain pattern that a lot of franchises fall into. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll use Nintendo and Mario as an example. Um, Mario, the real Mario 2, the Lost Levels, it's known as here, mm-hmm. uh, failed because 
you know, on the surface, well, a little below the surface, it's just, it was way too hard. It was cheap. It was NES hard, which means cheap, but mm -hmm. also it was the same, largely the same graphics, the same sound, the same controls. Mario was successful because Mario three was Mario one, but with more of that Mario mm -hmm. world was Mario three, but with more of that, it felt new and yet familiar. Uh, same with super Mario 64. I was actually, it's, it's almost funny to me that galaxy two was so much better than one because I actually prefer when Mario, you get one game on each platform and the next one is going to be, you know, running and jumping, but a lot of different stuff around it. Um, Mortal Kombat kind of fell into that. One was unique, two was familiar, but the graphics were just beautifully done with so many primary colors that popped. Um, and then three came along and then Ultimate Three and then Mortal Kombat Trilogy to the point where I was like, this is just the same game. Mm -hmm. And they kind of did that in the 3D era. You had five, six, and seven, which largely built on each other. And then Mortal Kombat 9 came around. It was this reinvention. But then 10 was like, oh, this is kind of the same game, but with more characters. And 11 is kind of the same game, but with more characters. And I'm being reductive to a point, but I feel like that because, I mean, first of all, I think society largely has reached the point where we're like, okay, Violent games are just, they're kind of like fun and silly and nobody's, mm -hmm. anyone intelligent knows deep down, they're, they're not corrupting people. Mm -hmm. um, so that it will always have its edge. I think Mortal Kombat is still trying to be extreme in the way it was in the 90s, but it's more kind of like, oh, wow, look what they came up with now sort of thing. Um, but also I feel like, um, so there, I, I think NetherRealm is probably working on Mortal Kombat 12 because the relationship with WB is, is shaky and that WB is looking to sell off some of its games companies. So that's why, you know, there, there are as yet officially unconfirmed reports that they pivoted from Injustice 3 to Mortal Kombat 12, even though it was a quote unquote off season. Yeah. And one of the rumors for that is, oh, it's going to be like 11, but with everybody. I'm like, well, this, these things in Mortal Kombat come in threes, like every three games, we get a Mortal Kombat trilogy type thing. And mm -hmm. on the one hand, that would be cool. But on the other hand, I kind of want like a new engine and a new mm -hmm. premise. Uh, they're almost, the story is still fun, but almost getting convoluted to the point where it's like DC, they kind of get scared and they're like, let's pull the plug again. Issue zero. Crisis time, crisis time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, I, I think that's part of it. Like I really like Mortal Kombat 11. I think the community as a whole kind of didn't, but, but I did, but also I'm mm -hmm. like, I do feel like I've been playing this game since 2011. I feel like we need another Mortal Kombat nine level reinvention because the next mortal Kombat will sell well they all do but it really needs like a a new face just the way it had yeah. a new face it with mortal Kombat 9 well and what's interesting uh, you know and what at the risk of spoiling the game for people i mean it's, it's been long enough i it's think it's been three years yeah. yeah yeah like the game ends with the promise and potential of doing exactly that they literally erase all of time and start over yeah um you know th there's no ambiguity about it like everything that's happened is now gone and we now have a new timeline so it feels like this is the time to do that so it'd be nice i, I agree with you it'd be nice to see them do that because as much as i did like 11 you know i didn't spend as much time with it as i did um you know 10 and i certainly didn't spend as much time with 10 as i did with nine right. like you know i i play the story the story's great they're they're fantastic and then i'm just kind of like yeah I'll, I'll mess around here and there but i'm not gonna invest a ton of time into it um but yeah it'd be cool to get like another kind of like okay everybody's here let's do a new let's do a new engine let's do all that kind of stuff i would like to see injustice 3 but yeah i i'm i, I think you're right in that the whole situation around warner right now is just and Mortal Kombat 12 is definitely the safer bet at that point. 
It, it is. And I also feel like it has to be, it kind of has to be as big a deal as possible because it's, it, you don't turn 30 every years, you know, every yeah. year. And in fact, given how development works these days, I wouldn't be surprised if they announce it this year, but we don't see it this calendar year. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, I feel like Mortal Kombat is at its best when a lot of the gameplay systems change along with the story. Yeah. Um, I didn't really I wasn't as attached to the 3D games as I was the games before and after, but the opening of Deadly Alliance MK5 when Liu Kang is killed was like a huge wall moment. Like that would be like if Capcom killed Ryu. That's that mm-hmm. you don't. That's not done. It's just not done. Mm-hmm. And that was like, oh, this is a shakeup. Even though Sub Zero and Scorpion are here, like you guys, Liu Kang is dead. Like it was a big deal. It was like mm-hmm. things are changing literally because this is a new style of of gameplay and that we're mm-hmm. shaking up the story and. I think both of those things have to happen for Mortal Kombat to have that same like, whoa, this is a, a new exciting thing factor. I think it'd be cool too. You know, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about transmedia stories and uh, you know, that's, that's the, you know, I got two books coming out that talk about that stuff. And, you know, one of the things we just had a pretty successful Mortal Kombat movie, um, mm-hmm. you know, opinions may be divided. I personally loved it. It was one of my favorite movies last year because I just, it, I don't know something about it. I just like watch this. Like this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, there's a lot of problems with it. I'm having a great time. Yes. Um, you know, uh, and that's one thing. By the way, the movies uh, for Mortal Kombat have always been better than the movies for Street Fighter, the the live action ones. Anyway, I know folks love the Jean Claude Van Damme one. I'm not going to say it's not entertaining, but it's not good. (laughs) No, I I think it's a good bad movie. Like I mean, M Bison fires torpedoes using a fight stick. Like that's yeah, objectively hilarious and you know yeah. the but for me it was tuesday's maybe my favorite line well julia is just he's, yeah. he's making a meal of everything in that and god bless him he's you know just yeah. a tremendous actor having a great time yeah um, and probably getting paid quite well so you know uh not a bad note to go out on really right. uh but uh yeah just it, mortal Kombat. i mean i think part of the reason the movies worked is because especially that first one they were smart and saying okay you know what makes sense Let's just rip off Enter the Dragon. Let's, yeah. you know, we're already halfway there. Let's just do it. And you know what? It worked. It like, really you don't did. have to, you don't have to overthink it. Um, but, you know, but with the new, with the movie and the new characters that have been added and kind of the changes it makes the timeline, it'd be interesting to see, like, you know, if we could take the comics, the movie and the game, make them all kind of talk to each other in some way narratively. So it feels like this bigger kind of sprawling thing that can maybe even lead to some spinoffs and kind of like, you know, because we had for a while they were experimenting with stuff like, what was it, um, MK Mythologies and Special Forces and whatnot. Yeah. Like, as like side-scrolling action games. Mm-hmm. I would love to see some other kinds of games set in the Mortal Kombat universe. I don't know if you've played Shaolin Monks. Um, I have not. Okay, so that was, it was on PS2 and Xbox. It's yep. really good. It was, you know, mythologies and special forces were special forces were kind of riddled with problems. They weren't very mm-hmm. good games. There was, but they're they were promising. Shaolin Monks actually delivers on that promise, and then some. You should track those down. They're a lot yeah. of fun. Um, but I kind of agree with you. In fact, Nether Realm has played with that. I I don't remember exactly whether it was before MK10 or after. It was probably before because they were setting the stage. I think, but there were Mortal Kombat. 10 comics that yep. kind of acted as a prelude and so like they've taken those first steps right and I, i'm with yeah. you i'd love to see them go further with that i definitely read those they were pretty good like they yeah, got some they were good. really good quality talent on them so 
Well, and that's that's something Mortal Kombat has always done. Like John Tobias really wanted, he's like, I want to do a comic because he came from a comic book background. And so even the the Mortal Kombat collector's edition that was advertised in the in the attract mode of the first game, that was a prelude to the first game, you know? Yeah. And I remember seeing the ads for that when when on the off chance I would see a machine, I'd be like, Oh, comic book. Oh, that's pretty cool. I like comics. Yeah. Um, you're at the Kmart and they got the Mortal Kombat 2 machine, like, wow, there's all kinds of things going on over there. Wow. Um I'm probably not going to go over and play it, but you know, hey, because I, I was kind of a scaredy cat. I'm like, I don't know. Can I go play the Mortal Kombat machine? I'm, I'm, I'm nervous. <laughs> like, it did have that. And I mean, some of the people wolfless. I interviewed were like, oh, Mortal Kombat. I'm not, I feel like I'm not supposed to see this. Like that sort yeah, of feeling. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And now I'm just like watching like people's faces get slashed off. I'm like, eh. <laughs> like so, you know, time desensitizes us all. Yes. Um, as, you know, and kind of along those lines, I think it's interesting. Like it, that seems to me to be a better way to go than kind of like, um, you know, there's there's an onion headline where uh, it's like Marilyn Manson now just trying to going door to door trying to shock people. Um, <laughs> is just kind of like a you know like you know Marilyn Manson is not a great person for a lot of reasons, but like it is kind of an interesting um way to think about how the, how we become not desensitized, but how just like stuff that was shocking and and alarming now becomes just like oh you. you as the generation turns over and the zeitgeist changes, um, that's no longer the case. And Moral Combat, mm-hmm. I think, was trying to do that because I remember the articles that came out around eleven with like, and I don't, I don't know how much this is like marketing, like sort of like marketing psyops or what. Um, but like, you know, he had the reports of people having like PTSD after like, you know, coming up with the fatalities and you know having to go. And, and I think there is probably some truth to some of that because they really did kind of put maybe too much thought into how into the graphic destruction of a human body and how that would work but also at the same time like it's a diminishing returns thing so i i maybe now is the time to kind of say well let's step back and see what we can do in these other areas you know not, i'm not saying get rid of fatalities you know make them worse but like let's yeah let's also do this other stuff yeah no i think you're right i think there it was it was several factors too like um that that's completely valid but those people were also probably working like 80 90 hour work weeks too because because crunch you know is is endemic in video games and that that's the thing like mortal Kombat. to me the the game in the arcade era with the best fatalities was probably either two or four because they were just silly enough but Mm -hmm. also with like that ooh factor that you wanted as a kid to kind of be fun mortal kombat 3s were just ridiculous like jacks grows into a giant and steps on you since when is jacks a giant or smoke dumps all these bombs out which like first of all cyrex is the one with the bombs i'm getting mortal kombat nerdy here but then yeah the world no, explodes this, this is a safe space to do that okay that's good that's good so like the world explodes i'm like okay well you lose i lose we all lose tournament over game over i guess like mm. it was too much and then mortal kombat i feel like the the, the contemporary games can be pretty just kind of like disgusting. Like, oh, I don't even yeah. want to see that. But also even the ones that are silly, like Johnny Cage has one where he punches through your chest, like rips you in half sideways and goes, here's Johnny. Like, okay, I get that. Ha ha. But also that's gross. And so I feel yeah. like they really haven't had, that's Mortal Kombat still trying to be sensational. And yeah, like in my opinion, that's probably the wrong track because again, the whole point of my book is that's all surface level. Here's why people really love Mortal Kombat. And so like you need fatalities because a Mortal Kombat without fatalities arguably is not Mortal Kombat, but what direction do they go in? Maybe that's something they should be thinking about for what we were talking about. If If there's like a radical new face, what do fatalities look like now, you know? Yeah. 
I, I definitely. And, uh, you know, but it's, it's just interesting because I feel like there's limitless potential here in the way that I wouldn't feel that same way about Street Fighter 6, right? Mm -hmm. Street Fighter 6, we know what Street Fighter 6 is going to be. It's going to be an esports focused game. The characters are going to get weirder in their proportions and kind of more grotesque. For some reason, that's how they decided to go. Um, you know, and that's fine. It'll probably play well, but I feel like Mortal Kombat will be like, you know, you can go a lot of different directions. And I'd really like to see them just really blow up what this game can be, especially if they're going to be kind of unmoored from the corporate overlords at Warner, potentially, mm -hmm. you know, to really go into business for yourself, make Mortal Kombat a bigger brand beyond just the fighting game would be really, really cool. I think the most interesting thing that I could think of in terms of the business of a business perspective is um microsoft acquiring another realm and mm. and mortal Kombat games becoming part of game pass like what does that that ease of access do to the the community well how does that change the esports scene you know like mm -hmm. yeah like there's also i, I i'm kind of with you i think mortal Kombat, mortal Kombat uh is a safe space to experiment because it always has been because it's always kind mm -hmm. of done that whereas yeah like one reason i haven't been really as interested in street fighter since the first release of four is because I think ultimately what Capcom is trying to do is remake Street Fighter 2, but with mm -hmm. a few more weirder characters in there. And I've played that game. Mortal Kombat, some of the games feel samey, but they also do go in radical directions often enough that I'm like, I want to yeah. see what's next because what's next could be really new, whereas Street Fighter, what's next is Street Fighter 2, but we're calling it 6 now, that sort of thing. Yeah. I think also, you know, the difference between the two, because uh, I was just listening to a podcast about, um, you know, Street Fighter 3 and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and one of the things is that Capcom got burned so bad on Street Fighter 3 that they just yeah. never want to experiment or go beyond a certain time frame again. I mean, that um, was a poster child for what we said earlier. That game, Street Fighter 3, is really cool, beautiful art style, but it was way, way, way too complex. I still yeah. don't understand that game and that it scared yeah. a lot of people away. Yeah, I mean, I played Third Strike on the Dreamcast. I had a great time. I've, I've got the Capcom, you know, the, the Street Fighter collection. I like going in there. I was just like bodying people with Chun-Li online for a while <laughs> because she's way overpowered in that game. And as a Chun-Li main, I'm super happy about that. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, yeah, it, it's it's just interesting how they just don't want to, how these two series have approached evolving um, over the years. And you know, I, I, Mortal Kombat doesn't feel like the lost cause yet in that regard. I mean, they're, they're, they've got a good foundation to certainly work from. Definitely, definitely agreed. Yeah, you know, like I said, there's always that possibility that what's next, what's next will will surprise you in some way, be it the mechanics, mm -hmm. the roster, or the story, or some combination therein. Yeah. Uh, so I got to just ask kind of, uh, you know, just a quick, easy question. What's mm -hmm. your favorite Mortal Kombat and who is your favorite combatant with the K? Mm, okay, I'll, I'll start with the latter. That's easy. I, I'm a Katana main always and forever, mm -hmm. um, except Mortal Kombat 1 because she kind of didn't exist, which is a, that's just a technicality. Uh, I really like her because she's fast. She has she kind of excels in juggle combos, which again was kind of Mortal Kombat has been Mortal Kombat's calling card that franchise invented juggle combos. Um, and I also just really like her backstory. I, 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 I like her for a lot of the same reasons. I like Catwoman. She's very cunning and intelligent she's beautiful and deadly you just don't want to cross paths with her in fact one of my favorite plot twists in the recent games was at the end of 10 when she and Liu kang become like this undead evil king and queen i'm like that's one of those surprising twists that's one of those ways mortal kombat can surprise you like oh the like heroes of heroes are now the 
like ultimate villains now. That's kind of mm-hmm. a cool idea. I like that. Um, my favorite game, I'll answer this in two ways. My favorite game overall is probably Mortal Kombat 9. Again, that game was just magical for so many people, even people like you who just had maybe a passing interest or less in Mortal Kombat before then. But in the arcade era, it's it's four. Um, I, I felt like three and then Ultimate and Trilogy after it kind of alienated some people with the combo system. The dial combos were like phone numbers. Unless you knew the combo, unless you knew the number, you weren't calling that person. And that put you at a disadvantage. In Mortal Kombat, another one of its calling cards had always been that it was deep in some ways, but it was also much more accessible than Street Fighter. You know, mm-hmm. that was something uh, John, Tobias, and Edwin wanted to do. Like they wanted anyone to be able to play this and have a good time. And Mortal Kombat 4 changed that with every everyone having the same combo strings, but the way you would mix and match them with things like your character's special moves and their aptitude at, at juggling with certain attacks made the characters feel unique. Now they, they kind of... Um, kind of curbed that with the maximum damage system which would break you apart if you went over 40 percent damage but it was mm-hmm. still more accessible like my sub-zero and your sub-zero had just enough difference to like we could learn from each other rather than oh yeah i know his strings show me what you do differently in this way in this way only you know yeah so yeah i'm a vocal minority mortal kombat 4 is is awesome and i'll always enjoy that game I I think that was the one um honestly that I probably played the most up until nine. Honestly, like you know, I mm-hmm. we, I we rented it one time and got all the endings for all the characters. I think we unlocked everybody and just it was, you know, dumb as hell in a lot of ways, but yeah. I, there was something there. It was fun. I don't know. It's always been like Mortal Kombat when it's dumb, it always feels except with the you know the extent of the fatalities we were talking about earlier it's always like fun dumb like that new movie it has a lot of issues but i had a blast with it too i'm like this is so dumb but good dumb yeah like they made me like kano kano (laughs) yeah yeah it was great that movie and like cabal like he's gonna suck his soul i'm like cabal you don't say that but i love that you did because that's hilarious yeah you know and i love that uh i think uh the guy uh who plays cabal is dewey crow on justified and it just made me laugh when i found out because like <laughs> it doesn't it sounds nothing like him but just knowing that it's it's dewey crow under well it's not actually him under the helmet but just imagining that it's dewey crow under the helmet just yeah made everything so much better yeah exactly um, so uh, this, you know, uh, we're, we're going to uh, probably have to wrap things up here. Uh, but, you know, this is obviously Long Live Mortal Kombat is part one of a longer work. Uh, as you've like, we got two more rounds. So what is kind of the roadmap for round two and three? Um, so writing is is not just what I do. It is very much my identity. I love this. I'm kind of a self-professed workaholic for better and, and for worse. Uh, but that said, I, I like to write a lot of different things. And so I don't think I'm going to tuck into Brown 2 right away. It'll probably mm-hmm. be, I don't know, maybe late in 2023, maybe 2024. I want to see how this this Kickstarter does. That will probably mm-hmm. be a, a, a very big determining factor. But um, I'm still very excited about them. I expect them to do well. I've, I've heard nothing but good things about them from, from early readers so far. Um, so, yeah, there'll be there'll be Round 2, which will cover the, the 3D games 5 through 7. And then final round, which will, at this point, it'll probably go through 12 because I'm sure 12 will be out and we'll have maybe mm-hmm. a DLC or two before I get around. 13 to might book. be out at that point. Who knows? 13 might be out at this point. But the thing, the yeah. same thing with Stay Well and Listen. I've already had people ask me, like, are you going to write about Diablo 4? Like, no, I, I, 
I usually have an exit ramp in mind and it's punched mm-hmm. into the GPS and I'm, I'm out after, after 12, probably. Yeah. Unless I find another entry point that intrigues me. If not, I don't want to burn out on it because I feel like that mm-hmm. would reflect in the book. So yeah. At some point you just want to play the games for fun too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There is that. I remember what that was like. Those were good yeah. times. You, you can do that still. I'm told. It, it, I'm going to do that great. with Elden Ring tonight. I'm very excited oh, about very it. Very nice. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I'm too scared to play Elden Ring. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm anxious. I'm nervous about the very prospect, but we watched my, my wife and I watched the trailers and she's like, that looks badass," And she doesn't normally react to, to game trailers that way. So um, my wife you know, loves the souls games. We've played them. We have two big TVs. She has her PS4. I have my PS5. We've gone through all those games. She plans to be right next to me while we play Elden nice. Ring. So yeah, should be fun. Again, video, you know, violent video games bringing people together. That's what That's this right. is about. That's right. Um, so David, obviously, you mentioned that this is a Kickstarter book, um, and you know, uh, the the freedoms that come with that. So to kind of wrap things up, let's do the plugs. How can folks check this book out? Um, or where do they? Uh, how do they find the Kickstarter? Your other works? What's uh, what's the? I'll give you the floor. How do folks give you money? Awesome. So uh, the two best ways, if you're interested in Mortal Kombat uh, specifically, go to longlivemortalkombat.com or probably maybe a better option in general. Follow me on Twitter at David L. Craddock. Uh, The Kickstarter for Long Live Mortal Kombat launched on Tuesday, March 22nd. And on my Twitter pinned right at the top, you will find a link to the Kickstarter. You'll also find a link to excerpts from the book. I've worked with a few outlets such as uh, Game Informer, Nintendo Life, among others, to post some some excerpts. So you can kind of dip your toes in the water before you take the full plunge. And yeah, it'll be on Kickstarter through April. I've also entered into a kind of a fun partnership with Arcade One Up, and we're going to be doing some really fun stuff there. So yeah, at David L. Craddock on Twitter and longlivemortalcombat.com. Those are your two um, one-stop destinations for information. Awesome. Well, David, it's been tremendously fun talking to you. Good to see you again. And, uh, this book is great. I'm really enjoying it. And, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the full finished version. Um, cause I know that's going to be, uh, something to behold. So, uh, and, and certainly when, whenever you do write the second one, please do come back. I'd love to talk about the kind of, you know, the kind of middle era of Mortal Kombat, which I am less familiar with. So it's going to be a lot more of me asking questions. So, so what's this about? What's this about? Is Mavado a bigger thing than I think he is? Like is, is that kind of stuff. He is a smaller thing than you think. Is, but I yes, we, we will the, dig into that. That's the one character that stood out to me from Deadly Alliance. And I'm like, he's got hook swords. That's great. That um, is great. But, Although he's kind yeah. of like Cabal, right? But anyway, yeah. That's right. Cabal, he did, he did, you know, he did bite Cabal's whole thing. So yeah. uh David Craddock, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for being on Serious Fun. Oh yeah, man. It was a pleasure. I always enjoy talking to you. Thank you for having me. And there you go. Big thanks to David L. Craddock for being on the show. Wonderful guy. Love his work. Can't wait for round two. But long live Mortal Kombat round one is on kickstarter.com right now. There's a link in the show notes. But that'll do it for Serious Fun this week. Serious Fun is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. Phoenix Studios executive producer is Ryan Martin and the production manager is Kate Farley. The episode you just listened to was engineered and produced by me. So if you don't like it, I'm sorry, and I'll try to do better next time. 
Our graphic designer is Kimberly Flees. Music in today's show comes from The Immortals, Dan Forden, and Benjamin Walfish. If you haven't already, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Serious Fun on your favorite podcast platform, whatever that might be. You can also head over to uwgb.edu forward slash podcast to check out past episodes of this and other Phoenix Studios shows. As always, I am your host, Brian Carr. Thanks for listening. You just listened to a Phoenix Studio production, the podcast network for the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, please visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts.